Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to So Hot Right Now. I'm Lucy Siegel. And I'm Tom Mustill. I'm a wildlife filmmaker. I make documentaries often about animals or about climate and stuff like that with people like David Attenborough and Greta Thunberg. And I'm a journalist and broadcaster. I have written a long-standing column for the Observer newspaper about ethical living. I write about sustainable lifestyles. I write a lot about the fashion industry and how it can be more green and ethical. And sometimes I go through people's bins so that I can lecture them about recycling. (laughs) I didn't know that. That's great. Well, so Lucy and I uh, found ourselves in a building near Paddington a few months ago before the lockdown started called the Frontline Club. Now, the Frontline Club is a place where journalists and war reporters and foreign correspondents would meet to talk about their work and their jobs, how they could communicate and report on dangerous, complicated scary and overlooked stories from around the world. And the Frontline Club wanted to do more to help environmental reporters because statistically, environmental reporting has become one of the most dangerous forms of reporting and is second only to war reporting in terms of fatalities. And they also felt like we should be talking more about climate coverage. April of 2020 has tied for the hottest April on record. And there's a 75% chance that this year will become the hottest one ever measured for the planet. It is literally so hot right now. The planet's heating up and the conversations are heating up too. This podcast is not about nature and climate. It's about how we talk about nature and climate. And it's about storytelling. And we should probably be clear that when we say storytelling, we don't mean making stuff up, fictional storytelling. We mean reporting communicating, passing on information in all the forms of that that are available to us. So this was a bit of a departure for us because usually I would be talking about ways that you can be greener, make your life more sustainable. But actually I realised that what I really wanted to do was to become more effective at communicating nature and climate breakdown and that there was a really urgent job to do. And it was a departure for you as well. Yeah, normally I just direct films, but I was feeling like I could be doing it better. I could be doing more. And we don't really get much of an opportunity to learn from each other in media. So we thought we'd ask the people that we respected the most across the spectrum of communications to tell us what they've learned and and, and how they feel about it, what they do. So we have gathered together some masters of communication, and that includes former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, the singer, producer and activist, Ellie Golding, Christiana Figueres, who was the chief architect of the Paris Agreement. And of course... A man who needs no introduction. Go on. Sir David Attenborough. And he very generously agreed to speak to us from his home during lockdown in the week of his 94th birthday. Now, we couldn't just turn up during the lockdown at David Attenborough's house with a, with a recording equipment. So, And he has a landline. Um, so we had to figure out a way that we could have a kind of conference call uh, to his landline, which we did with some jiggery-pokery and... Uh, 1960s telephone splitting equipment so that's why it sounds a little bit like we're calling David Attenborough on his landline because that's exactly what we're doing that's exactly what we did yes and a huge thanks to sound engineer Alan Salabank who managed to find that rare bit of kit that Tom mentioned so we could all chat at the same time and record it lucky escape from his cat as well as Alan will explain at the end. There was so much to talk about, from plastics to Greta, to the delay of COP2020 in Glasgow. That's the UN's climate change conference, which has been postponed. Well, and for me personally, it was a chance to ask him questions that I've been thinking of throughout my career in wildlife filmmaking, questions that I 
I've wanted to ask him for a long time about how we do our job, how we balance telling people about the natural world and the threats to it. And the answers that he gave, I have thought about a lot since, and I hope you also will be able to apply in your own lives, communicating whether it's at the United Nations or with your dad or with your friends, because we all need to get better at talking about this stuff. And here's Sir David Attenborough to tell us how. Oh, hi, David. It's Tom. Thanks so much for joining us. OK. Good morning. Good morning, David. It's Lucy. Uh, where are you and how have you been finding the lockdown? Uh, well, it's enabled me to get a lot of, a lot of things which I, uh, I had to put on one side for various things. Life has been fairly hectic in the, in the last few months and, uh, and I'm rather grateful to be able to, to deal with some of the things that I should have dealt with before. Has it been tough for you being away from nature and not being able to do any filming this spring? No, rather the reverse. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I don't normally spend these... I mean, uh, 50 years ago, I spent uh, several months every year away. Um, but um, when I got into my late 80s and 90s, I don't spend so much in, in rainforests and so on. Uh, maybe a couple of months a, a, a year, all in all. But um, I, I have a very nice garden, and uh, I spent some time watching the birds. Um, I think for many people, um, this lockdown has been a period of reflection about what's important and, and thinking about some of the challenges that we face when we come out of the coronavirus. Well, I, I, I know what I will do uh, when I get out of this. I mean, I've got a whole list of things. The simple question is, how many of them am I able to do? I essentially don't know what the plans are and so how many people may be able, allowed to get together and where and when and what about meetings and so on. Um, it's been difficult to plan. There are plenty of things to do. Um, um, mostly, of course, uh, the uh, talks in Glasgow, which um, I've been worried about. And those, of course, have been postponed. Yes, uh, and, uh, and in many ways, I hope that we take advantage of that. Uh, I, I was getting worried that we were behindhand with our preparations and for the talks. Um, well, now we've got no excuse. We must, we must really put our, uh, our minds to it and, and get ourselves fully prepared. Absolutely. Um, David, I wanted to tell you, our aim with this podcast um, is that we all get better at talking about nature and climate. And well, we'd, we'd like to ask you about the craft of natural history filmmaking and the power of wonder to connect audiences with nature. So many people, uh, like me, uh, obviously, would have been inspired to become wildlife filmmakers because of you and your work. But the world now is very different from the world when you started. And we're in quite a scary situation with climate and the living world uh, and its destruction. And clearly, we natural history filmmakers have a very important role to play. And I'd like to ask, if you were starting out today, what would you do? I would be very lucky indeed to get a, to, to get a job. My career started with, with, with the flimsiest of qualifications. I mean, I'd never been abroad. I had, um, I had a degree in, in natural sciences, and that was about all. Uh, and I didn't know anything about making programmes. I didn't know anything about cameras. The, the, today, uh, it's a highly professional business, and it's possible to have a career both either as a, a, a director uh, of natural history films or indeed a filmmaker. I think most people start these days by being filmmakers because they want to be out there uh, and face-to-face -face with the animals that they are interested in. Um, and that's a very good way to start. It's very competitive. Uh, the standard of uh, photography these days is just sky high and demanding not only uh, a remarkable insight into um, animal behavior, but a, a technological mastery of, of the various electronic devices that we now have at our disposal. There aren't, of course, all that number of, of productions going on these days, many more than there were when I started. <laughs> when I started, nobody else was bothering to do it. But even so, uh, the uh, top echelon of, uh, of cameramen now are so expert that it is very difficult, uh, I think, to, to, make a, to make a start. People write to me and say, oh, you know, how do we get into this business? And my reply is simple, uh, which is that home video these days is is 
close to perfection. Um, so why not try and make a film about a simple thing? It doesn't matter whether it's a pigeon or a mouse or a rat or indeed a slug. If you set about doing one of them, selecting one of those things, you will think about the problems of how you construct a narrative that were a story that will hold people's attention not just of simple exciting shots but of, of, of all that is required in order to do that and if you do if you work on that you could work it out for yourself as whether you made a, and see whether you made a boring film or an interesting film and you will also discover uh, whether you yourself like to spend hours on your stomachs or in a in a hide waiting for something to do something and maybe you'll end up with a, a document, a, a film, a five-minute, ten-minute film that will persuade people who might give you a job that you really are serious in your in your dedication, that this is what you want to do, even though it's hard, even though it's tough, even though it's at times very boring. And I, I guess a lot of people, I mean, I was a biologist who became a filmmaker, and there are a lot of people in natural history who took that route, and there are a lot of people who... Have a, already have a passion for the natural world and might have tried to film some things, who are finding themselves in this position where they might have wanted to make films just about natural history, but because you know the animals, if you look around and you what you make a film about a pigeon or make a film about a squirrel, you might see that those animals' lives are impacted by human activities, and I find it a real challenge to try and think about how you balance keeping that sense of wonder when you're making a film and engaging people with natural history, with reflecting the real, very real challenges that uh, animals are facing because of the way we're changing the world? Well, um, there are many ways of making natural history films, and what you've just described is one of them. Uh, but it's only one of them. Um, there is uh, the straightforward natural history film that, that puts people in touch with the natural world and gives them some insight into the way the natural world works. Um, uh, the the drama of dangers and, and, and problems and catastrophes that facing the natural world are indeed extremely important. But don't neglect either... Uh, the insight that one can get into the way the natural world works. And if we want to help the natural world, you have to understand that. Nor should you actually diminish the fact that, that there is a, a, an extraordinary need in all of us to see the natural world and the way it works. The fact of the matter is that the, the world is more populated than it has ever been. The wilderness is scarcer than it has ever been. And our contact with the natural world, the, or most human beings' contact with the natural world, is extraordinarily limited. The United Nations says that two-thirds of the human population are urbanized. That means that, that two-thirds of the human population are, to some degree, out of touch with the natural world because they don't see it in a very limited form, or indeed perhaps not at all, perhaps only a pigeon or a rat. None that, so if we are to understand the, the predicament of the rainforest or the importance of the rainforest, then there's a, a learning process to be gone through, and, and films can, can do that, uh, not in an ostensible, ostensible um, pedantic kind of way, but to show the, the knowledge will come through the, the cracks in the narrative, as it were, uh, which enabled you to get a feeling for the natural world. David, do you think we're doing enough as in broadcasting or as writers at, at getting across the problems facing the natural world? What could we do better? Oh, I, I, I think there's not just one thing and not just one answer. There needs to be a lot of people making natural history films and a lot of outlets for natural history films to be seen. Now, I only know about public broadcasting in a big way. I am not familiar with the multitude of different ways which people these days communicate insights into the natural world, whether it's small podcasts or whether it is some other circuit of, of people who communicate with one another and show what they've got. Um, and to, to think it was just uh, the natural history films made by broadcasting organisations or shown by broadcasting organisations would be a mistake. I guess uh, I was looking back at, at your work and thinking about how different it is now 
when you started, you know, if people wanted to see a video of an animal or an ecosystem that existed in another country, there was only really one place to see it, and that was on television, and it was in, in black and white. And now somebody can decide they want to see an octopus in Sumatra and get out their phone, and 30 seconds later they can be watching a video of it. And attention spans are, are short, and the natural world is full of complexity and detail. When you sit down to write your narration... How do you imagine your audience and, and write to engage them? Uh, the first thing to say, I think, is that, that, that the, the right way to make natural history films is to, is to try your damnedest to tell the story in pictures. Uh, the best film of all would have no commentary on it at all. But we know we don't reach that degree of perfection. You can't really do that, but, but close. And the, the more you can leave to the pictures, the more evident it is from the pictures as to what the story is, uh, uh, the better, in my view. Commentaries, in my view, again, uh, should be kept to the minimum. And when I look back at films that I've made in the past, I nearly always say to myself, there's, about, there's too many words there. He's, that narrator is using too many words. Uh, and I'm sure that's right. Uh, you should pare the words down to the absolute minimum and allow the pictures to tell the story. Um, and uh, it's a very, very good discipline. I don't go in for flower in narrations. I don't, there's no point in using adjectives. The point of adjectives is to try and give to people a, in their men, a mental image of what you're talk, writing about. If you've got film, you don't need adjectives. You shouldn't actually tell people what they can see already. And you shouldn't inject your subjective emotions too much onto them. They're, they're responsible for their own subjectivity, I think. I wanted to ask you specifically about plastic. You took a big decision with Blue Planet 2 to include the plastic crisis in the series, and it provoked an unprecedented public reaction. I know because I suddenly was able... I've been, been on the trail of plastic waste globally for about 15 years, and I, for the first time, I had people, viewers, chasing me around, asking me questions. I interviewed, you know, grown men who cried on beaches because of the damage that plastic was doing and the, the world that their grandchildren would inherit. So thank you. <laughs> but were you surprised by the reaction? Well, yes, uh, indeed, because, in fact, we've been saying that sort of thing, for, for, as you have too, as you just said, for 15, 10, 15 years. So have we. Somehow it, it didn't ring a bell. And if, if, if we as broadcasters knew what it was that suddenly makes something take off, we would be, we would be very clever indeed and have a, a talent which uh, advertisers would give a huge sums of money for. Uh, it was absolutely unexpected as far as I was concerned. I mean, I knew that in, in Blue Planet 2, and, and this was a decision by the producers, not initially by me, uh, I knew that we would have to deal with this particular thing. We would mention, as indeed we have done again and again and again, but we would do it again. And, it, and it, the moment came when there was, we, I was walking along a beach and it was just terrible, the amount of litter, plastic litter was on the beach, and I simply picked up a bit and said something. Now, that sequence didn't last more than about a couple of minutes, I should think. And yet suddenly, for some reason or other, which is un it must be where it was placed in the in the broadcasting schedules, what other programmes had gone at the same time, um, what the the mood of the nation was at the time. I don't know what it was, but suddenly there was an unprecedented response. And of course it was very gratifying. But it wasn't you can't I can't claim to have done it in any better way or different way or more concentrated or more inspired way than I have done um, again and again in previous years, as indeed I'm sure you have. Do you think that we can learn anything from the, the public response to Blue Planet 2? No, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, 
because you know it, it really does depend. What was the news that morning? That morning, uh, what was the on, on the uh, other channel at the time? Uh, was there a popular football match at the time? Um, uh, what time of the day was it scheduled? Uh, who knows? Audiences are very difficult to predict, and as I said, advertisers would pay a lot of money if they could predict what the reaction of audiences are, but they can't. A lot of people maintain they can, but I don't believe they can. I mean, we do our best, we plug away, saying the same thing over and over again, as I've been doing, and, I, and plenty of others have too. Um, and the plastic issue is an issue that nobody can claim that it was that had not been ventilated before or not mentioned before by plenty of other people. Uh, of course it had, but why that, why Blue Planet 2, um, and that, that very short sequence had the quite, a different order of, of reaction by the public, I can't tell. I think a lot of people will be surprised to hear that because I think sometimes in retrospect it can seem planned and it can seem obvious that something would have got a reaction uh, that then everybody points to. Um, but it's, it's fascinating to think of how much luck is at play in all of this and in broadcasting. Yes, you um, just have to keep going at it. You mentioned Blue Planet too, and I, I also wanted to mention another film that you, a series that you made recently, which was Seven Worlds, One Planet. I just, it, I was absolutely blown away by it. I thought it was fantastic because climate change and the biodiversity crisis were so beautifully and clearly embedded throughout the stories where they were relevant. Um, and the films didn't lose any sense of wonder. I thought they were mesmerizing. And, and I felt that personally, when I watched this, I felt it was like a relief because it felt that this was a, obviously, you know, animals are challenged by things that we're doing. And, it, and, we're, and we'd included that as a part of our natural history because and I, I, I just I felt that was a wonderful series. Well, that um, credit is, is due to uh, Johnny Keeling and his team of producers. Johnny uh, uh, was in charge of, of the whole thing, but there were some very talented producers and cameramen. My my contribution to that series, as to most of the last of the sort of blockbusters that have been for the past uh, ten years, is restricted to the uh, to the text to to the words. I. I spend a lot of time on trying to get them right um, and uh, along the lines which I've just been talking about. Uh, but that's my contribution. But the, the, the overall credit for these big series should go to the big teams. Of the, and, and you will know that there are 10, 20 people, 30 people working on any one of these series who are led by a, a, a senior producer from the Natural History Unit. That's where the, the credit lies. You are, of course, David, not, not just a filmmaker in your career. You've also been a controller, a channel controller of BBC Two. Mm -hmm. So you've, you've worn the commissioning hat. What would you commission now? Where, where do you see the gaps in natural history broadcasting these days? I'm, I've no idea. Um, the, the, the world of broadcasting has changed since I was controller of BBC or indeed director of programmes as I, as I was the next job I had responsible for the whole of scheduling of BBC television and at that time uh, the BBC had a very large staff of producers and directors specialists in their own particular areas and it was from that sort of collegiate spirit that group uh, uh, understanding and dialogue which was very powerful and very active in those days that the best ideas came now uh, the, the government decided that, that the bbc uh, was should open up that it shouldn't just have a, a staff. We had a staff of 25,000 people. You know? It was a big organization. Uh, and the Natural History Unit was founded uh, in, uh, at that time and had a degree of specialism which led the world. Uh, now, the government says, OK, 50% now of your programs have got to come from outside. Uh, and that, that, so that over within more measurable space of time, that the collegiate spirit of a group of specialists all working together, meeting in the canteen, exchanging ideas, thinking about where the, the gaps had to be, um, uh, has, has disappeared. 
Um, now I can see why they have, uh, because it the, it was getting in a, a danger of being too much of like a closed shop and very difficult for outsiders to get in. But the cost of doing so was the loss of that of that collegiate spirit, and so now the commissioning process depends very heavily on on people from outside, small independent producers sending in ideas, and the, that has a lot to be said for it. But what it does mean is that there is not so much of the conversation between producers in which which were very productive, which led you to say, why can't we do it this way or that way? Where is the big gaps uh, that we haven't done? Why don't we tackle this, that or the other? So that you end up with independent people or having very similar ideas because they come from the, as it were, the atmosphere that you're breathing. Uh, so that uh, ideas become very similar. It's very difficult. How, how, how could it not? Because people don't know what others are thinking. There isn't that group thinking anymore. The, the loss of that kind of collegiate spirit, that sounds like a tragedy to me. I would have loved that. Well, it was it was it was great if you were there. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> so great if the if if you were on the outside banging on the glass do- uh, door saying, "Let me in. I want to hear what you're saying," and, um, and which which of course was the other side of the coin. So it's it's a difficult thing. I'm not suggesting that it was perf- I mean, I, the way I've described it, uh, which was the way it was for most of my career. Of course, I. Thought it was great, but that was because I was lucky. But that was because I was I was on the inside. If it were if you were on the outside, desperate to get a chance, um, then it was a different matter. Mind you, I think it's still now very very difficult to get a chance. People with independent ideas, particularly if they're new, particularly if they're unfamiliar. I mean, how do you get how do you get that to a, a, a commissioner who, after all, we're tra- the commissioners we're talking about are responsible for not just natural history but a whole area of documentary output? It's very difficult for them, and indeed, perhaps it's it's culpable of them if they start. Uh, cherishing one particular group and saying, now, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And the other groups say, hey, hang on, you know, why why don't we have your ear? It's a, it's a tricky problem. I think, um, it, and it's also changing as well a lot because you have established broadcasters like the BBC uh, and and if you're trying to make films about natural history, you could try and make films for them. But then you've also got the means of production and transmission in, in the palm of your hand. You know, you can film something and then put it on Instagram and YouTube and also directly uh, speak to audiences. And I was thinking about what you talked about, the sort of collegiality. Like when, when I'm on a wildlife film shoot, many of the most the, the best memories I have are from speaking of the colleagues that I'm with and the team and that feeling of, of doing these things together. And often you see with young people now that if they can't do that within the BBC I feel that people are making these kinds of communities themselves deciding what interests them themselves and broadcasting it themselves uh, even as more traditional routes into telling these stories disappear for them. Yes I I, I mean it's true but but if making top quality natural history films these days can be a very expensive business. There are there you, you, solo efforts of people who are very dedicated and very skilled and working in one particular area can produce results. But the the, the, the sort of blockbuster programs are very time-consuming and very expensive to do, and they need a lot of backing. And the Natural History Unit manages, in my view, obviously I'm prejudiced and, and, and in favour of it, but it, it, it tries to get the best of both worlds. Um, but I am also very ignorant about the other ways in which people can get these programmes shown. And it's it's a nice idea that, in fact, you could have a, a particular plot in your mind, a particular cause in your mind, and you can go away and, and, and get it filmed and then show it uh, on one of these smaller networks. Uh, well, A, it doesn't get the, the, the exposure which, which one of the big networks can provide, and B, it doesn't get the backing, the financial backing that the, the networks can provide. So it's, uh, I suppose in many ways... 
we're getting the best of both worlds, um, the, 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 both things exist. And I only know really about mainstream broadcasting. And I'm well aware that I don't use the, the other uh, networks that are available to me through my, through my computer. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. We talked about plastics and how that hit and how that prompted this incredible public reaction. But I'm guessing that that hasn't always been the case. Have there been times when you have simply gone too early with an issue or something didn't take hold in the way that you thought it might? Yeah, sure. Um, I I, I remember um, I was asked to make a programme uh, for the new millennium, uh, 1990. We're on 2020, aren't we? I was we uh, 20 years ago. I was asked to make a program uh, about what was facing the natural world, and and I ended up on Easter Island and talking about overpopulation, talking about uh, climatic change, uh, talking about ecological degradation, and so on. It was a it was a, a end piece of the of the whole one-hour program, and I suppose I talk for perhaps three minutes, maybe, something of that order. Um, and all those things were in there, um, uh, and, and <laughs> nobody took a blind bit of notice. Uh, I mean, people write to me now and say, uh, one of the problems facing the world is is, is the, the growth of popular, human population. I agree. I've talked about that. I made another film uh, uh, more recently about that, saying how many people can the, can the planet Earth, can live on planet Earth? Well, I suppose a ripple, but not much more than that. Um, and uh, it's it's like plastic. I mean, you know, uh, it could well be that the, the population issue becomes more and more, and suddenly it begins to take off. But um, uh, we can only do our best. I'm wondering, does it require, you know, some sort of solutions as well to be in place? Because actually Tom and I talk about this a lot, but we often re- reference the ozone layer and the fact that when that became a really, really big issue in the 1980s and it, it, it captured the public imagination that there were solutions behind the scene. Well, it, didn't, so- it didn't catch the public imagination um, except after it had been solved. The, the fact right. of the matter was it was a highly technical climatological phenomenon uh, which uh, a few scientists initially working in the Antarctic looked at all the figures, looked at all the graphs and so on and saw that there was this problem. And But not only was it a highly technical uh, uh, problem, but it was one that had a highly technical uh, solution in which industry and scientists had to work out as to what it was that was causing which, which particular product it was that the, the world was producing that was dissolving the ozone layer. And it was recognized it was CFCs and, and, and that there was, they were perfectly simple technological solution to the problem was don't use those in refrigerators. And once you did that and, and, and the technologists and industry, not the public at large, technology and industry actually recognized it through the work of the United Nations and so on, their various committees, and, and produced a, a, a scientific answer to the problem. Bang. Didn't cost a lot of money. It cost simply a change in policy in how you made refrigerators and, and, and associated things. So that was a, a, a simple problem. Uh, when it comes to uh, climate change and, and, and overheating the planet, that's a much, much difficult, more difficult thing. And we have to persuade the entire population of the world uh, about what the problem is and how they have to change their habits. Well, changing not not just a group of manufacturers in a highly technical industry, but normal populations in their daily lives to change their daily lives, that's a, a, a much more difficult proposition and one which we simply have, which we haven't as yet solved. And I hope we will do before much longer. 
and with that problem, with trying to get a lot of people to understand a threat and that they'll need to change their behaviors in order to face it, communication is, is an enormously powerful tool. I feel like as a filmmaker, it, it can be very intimidating to see this and to realize that you have the potential in your filmmaking and to tell people about this with such high stakes and such little time. It can, it's, it's extremely intimidating. What advice would you give us? I've, I've no idea, really. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I, I think we just, all of us have to do what we can within our own, uh, our own areas and within our own powers um, and our own possibilities. And there are lots of different ways of doing it. And we all have to keep at it. Um, what the result of coronavirus is going to be, I don't know. Uh, but I'm beginning to get a feeling that, 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 that for the first time, the nations of the world are actually beginning to see that survival depends on cooperation. And that, if that happens, that's going to be a first in human history. I mean, you know, the United Nations, uh, after all that had... Has had a bit of a stutter in its in its in its um, uh, life. I mean, life of uh, League of Nations started after in the 30s, and we um, and that collapsed. Um, United Nations has done better, uh, but we still have got problems uh, in America. We still have problems in Brazil. We still have areas and politicians all around the world who deny what the, what the problems are. And and if we are convinced that, that we can see the truth. And then we have to keep on saying it and, and doing what we can. You're obviously famous for getting to these huge audiences and speaking to, to, to all of us. But do you also, do you ever try and speak to those in power? I mean, you just referenced some of them. Do you ever try and lobby those leaders and politicians at the top of the tree? Well, of course we do. Um, and I've been... I, I, Talk to the IMF. I, I've, I've talked to the United Nations. I've talked to the uh, the COPUS problem. That's what COPUS is about. Um, but when you find that the, the leader of the, of, the, of, of the most powerful country in the world doesn't accept what you're talking about, you've got a problem. And going from the most powerful people to perhaps some of the least powerful people, many people are anxious about climate and the destruction of nature, especially young people. Um, what would you say to them? I know more than the, the, what I've just been saying now, really. Um, one can only keep at it. I mean, you know, never in the whole of human history, let's face it, I mean, the world has never acted with the united agreement to do something. Never. Well, perhaps the only, the only way I can think of, I mean, CFCs and the ozone layer, that was one thing, and that, but that was highly technical and the decisions were, and, and convictions were restricted to a small number of people. We did manage to get the, the, the seafaring nations of the world to get together to protect whales. That was a, a, a great achievement and, and in which nations who had a lot to lose in the matter in terms of sheer economic income uh, got together and agreed that if they went on the way they were doing, they were going to exterminate the whales and, and then everybody would be lost. Well, now we have to try and do that uh, worldwide. And what are the platforms? I mean, we've got to persuade people all over Asia, all over Africa, who are still now, all over South America, who are still not in, in political power, who are still not convinced about what we're talking about. Um, and, but how do you do with that? How, how do we, sitting here, go and stop the Brazilian rainforest from continuing to be destroyed? And when we say to them, uh, look, uh, the problem, we can understand you've got problems, but if you go on the way, are you going to infect the entire world by disrupting uh, the atmospheric pattern of the world? And who knows what will happen? You will lose a lot, and the world will lose a lot. But then the, the government of, the, of the Brazil says, we don't believe you. And we're not going to do it. And we need, and you cut down your forest, now we're going to cut down our forest. So what do you say to that? And how do you react? You, you mentioned before that you can end up speaking to a, a world leader or hearing from a world leader who doesn't, well, doesn't believe in climate change. How do you personally react to that? Well, you just have to keep on. What else can you do? I mean, uh, you can't do it by force. 
So you keep on with dialogue. You keep on by the public dialogue of, of, of what we're talking about and trying to persuade people. I mean, there are plenty of people in Brazil, plenty of people in the United States and many other parts of the world whose leaders don't follow those answers. I mean, after all, even Australia, you know, um, uh, the government of Australia explaining why they want to go on burning coal. Um, what do you do? Uh, you can't do it by force. You can only do it by argument. And so uh, one has to go on uh, making these sort of films, making these sort of programs, making these sort of arguments. There is no alternative. You can't, you can't enforce it. One thing that um, gives me a lot of hope is that you mentioned things where the world has you know, sort of got together around a problem, like you know, the stopping whaling, for instance. We're faced with this virus, and I think there's been very few points in human history where everybody has been doing the same thing at once, but we're all staying at home at the moment to fa- face this thing down. And a really interesting thing that's come out of it is that many people, myself included, are paying a lot more attention to the natural world around them, to birdsong, to trees, um, and taking solace from that and valuing it. How have you found this spring? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the great source of hope is young people. Uh, the, the great source of hope are, are people all over the world, young people all, all over the world, who actually see that their future is in jeopardy and who believe that those of us who are talking about these changes and the influences of treating the natural world properly uh, are talking the truth. Uh, and those young people are becoming more, more, getting more and more political power as time passes. So that is where the hope lies. Um, and and that the, the, the old retrograde people stuck in their ways with the old economic patterns and so on are becoming in, getting into the minority. And so that in the future, uh, the, the younger people, as they get older and wiser and more powerful, will be able to do something about it. And we must do everything we can to support them. We know that um, when we talk about young people, we know that so many people have been galvanised by Greta Thunberg and the, the, the school strike movement. What have you made of uh, Greta and, her, and the impact that she's had? I think she's very remarkable. Um, and, and what is more, she is, uh, uh, with all that power, she's nonetheless extremely modest. Uh, uh, she, she is extremely well informed, but she's also very modest. And she keeps saying, look, Our only guide has to be the science. We must follow Mm, what the science says. It's not me Mm. that says that cutting out this, that, or the other is important. Uh, It is scientists who are saying that, and and we should back them. And she's making sure that the young people are making their voices felt uh, and making their voices clear that they support what ecologists are saying, what the people who study the natural world, who study the climate, are saying about the immediate future and the importance of, uh, of what we're doing. What else can you do? And what about the media reaction to Greta? And the, uh, she's, she's, she's encountered some pretty unpleasant pushback from, from some quarters. Yes, I mean, well, you, that's, that's the way it is. It, that's the way life is. That's the way society is. And if, in fact, you are particularly well informed about the natural world and that you find that you can't get to your work uh, to do what you want to do or what you need to do to earn a living because somebody has stopped you because they're talking about an issue you don't know about, it shouldn't come as a surprise that there will be some people as a consequence of that who will, who will be uh, uh, act in, a, um, in a, an outraged way. A lot of people talk about sort of the next David Attenborough. And, it's, and, I, and I find it a very strange question because I feel that with your work, you have kind of sort of made generations of new David Attenboroughs who were all out there sort of telling these stories in their different ways. <laughs> this is a bit naff, but I just want to say thank you. I think it's, it's so impressive. Um, and I'm not sure if I'll get another ch- chance to interview and say this. So, yes. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you very much. But, you know, uh, uh, I, I've been so lucky. I've just been in the right position. And with, with my finger or my play, I mean, pace, placed 
in, in industrial terms, as it were, in a position where I could do things about it. Um, and I, I can't believe that I'm lucky as I am. I think that the world has changed since I got into that position, and I don't think there is... Uh, I mean, when I started, nobody else bothered. There wasn't anybody else doing it, so it's easy enough uh, to raise your voice and, and, and say certain things. Now, thank goodness, uh, it's not like that. Now there's a lot of a lot of voices and a lot of different platforms, and people are saying the mere fact that we're having this conversation, this conversation would be incomprehensible to those listening if they were if it was going out 20 years ago. They would find it. Uh, what are these people blathering about? Well, I hope it's not incomprehensible <laughs> now to anybody. Well, I mean, incomprehensible I... in the sense that they see don't see the urgency of it. They don't see the importance of it. They don't see the universality of it from 20 years ago. They didn't. And what is more, it was in the distant future. And and the, the trouble is that right now, uh, the, the, the climate issue is also seen as being rather in the distant future because we've got the virus to think about. And so uh, what are the papers full of? The virus, quite right. That's what I want to know about too. Uh, but um, we have to make sure that this issue, which was coming to the boil with the next uh, COP meeting in, in Gauta, was coming to the boil, preparing for that, suddenly it's been swept off the front pages. And we've got to get it back there. Do you have any tips as to how we might get it back on the on the front pages? No, no I, <laughs> if I knew that, I would be a dictator, I don't say. <laughs> but I'm not. I, I, I don't know. We, we, you and me and, and, and lots of others like us have to keep on going on about it. But, um, but the, the clock is ticking. The danger of, of, of the Arctic and uh, uh, the Antarctic warming is, is becoming greater day by day by day. So I think Tom and I having a bit of a moment here and I just want to add you I mean you're so so modest but one of the things so there's 10 years between myself and Tom and then my nieces also will reference you and your programs so it's this great consistency in environmental natural history education that we've all had because of you and your 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 enthusiasm and your commitment hasn't doesn't seem to us to have waned at all. How have how have you man how have you managed to keep the wonder, I guess, and the enthusiasm? Um, I, no, I can't I can't answer that, but I but I I should uh, should say that uh, uh, we are very very lucky to have a public service broadcasting organisation that took up this issue 50 years ago, 60 years ago, created the Natural History Unit, uh, which is still uh, the most uh, vocal with the, the the loudest voice, with the strongest, widest reach uh, in in in, in those dealing with the issue. And uh, and that consists of a lot of very talented people, vigorously led uh, and, and campaigning uh, in the way they are. And uh, it's, it is really not just me. Uh, I mean, there are 50 people, 100 people there who are, believe, who are there because they believe in what you and I believe in and who are doing their best uh, in all sorts of ways to get that message across. I think it's very encouraging to hear that as well, because I think... Um, certainly when I was there, you see all of these people who are so driven to communicate these things they feel so passionately about. And in this very atomized time where you can feel very separated from other people, where you're worried about these things, I think it's very important to feel that other people care about these things too. And they do. They do. Good. Well, let me thank you very much for allowing me to blow, up, blow my top off in this sort of way. Oh, it was wonderful. Uh, David, I just have one sort of kind of nosy slightly trivial question um you mentioned the birds in your garden the bird song that you've been hearing this spring what birds what birds do you have in your garden the very very ordinary birds uh, that, that everybody would recognize and everybody would know uh, and but what everybody might not realize is just how many they know um, I was I wasn't quite sure either. I was sitting with in what uh, having a cup of coffee on my terrace with a pair of binoculars, um, and suddenly thought to myself, how many birds do I get at this garden? Not 
not not exceptional ones, but regularly. Answer, 24. 24? Yeah. Wow. Yes, exactly so. You start adding them up, you know, just the common ones, you know, blue tit, great tit, um, long tail tit, not so rare, rarer, but there, uh, thrush, blackbird, uh, it goes on and on and on. Um, and I can tell you something um, which uh, is a boast, and it wasn't my observation, but somebody pointed it out to me. Here, when I live in West London, uh, not so far from Richmond Park, uh, last year, uh, in my garden, sitting in my garden, I was watching peregrines. Peregrines? Oh, wow. <laughs> peregrines. I would love to see that. <laughs> I heard that one of the eagles from the Isle of Wight flew over London. I think it's from the Isle of Wight recently and nobody spotted it. Um, and that one of the bird watchers who mentioned it said, just look up, just look up. If an eagle can fly over London and nobody sees it, you know, what does that tell you? So you see, the world is changing, not always for the worse. That's a nice conclusion to get to, isn't it? <laughs> it's great. Yeah. That, that'll keep us going. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I've enjoyed this so much. Thank yes. you. Thank you, David, David. Attenborough. <laughs> and, yeah. Okay. Thanks. Great. Thank you, David. Bye. I'm slightly overwhelmed by the occasion. Oh my God, that was amazing. <laughs> I thought it was interesting as well because I've been watching a lot of ZooQuest from like barley in the when, when was that made 1950s but he was he he was saying about how the narration was a bit overblown yeah because i really love the narration in yeah. it <laughs> i love a description I, I was thinking of that i was thinking of all the commentary i've written that he's had to read thinking <laughs> like how often he has read something with too many adjectives that I've written and thought, oh God, honestly, is that really necessary? <laughs> <laughs> and maybe kindly not said so. Um, uh, I'll definitely take more of an axe to my, my commentary now. Well, we're here to learn, huh? So, so I guess every Attenborough film has a making of, and uh, this Attenborough recording uh, has quite a complicated making of because uh, we are split all across the country and joined by Alan Salabang. Alan has had to get a piece of equipment that I think last saw service before David Attenborough introduced colour TV to the United Kingdom. It, it's still in use quite a lot um, in the, sort of the radio scene, but uh, yeah, they, they are remarkably rare and uh, now very expensive to buy brand new. So uh, we were extremely lucky to be able to um, pull in, yeah, brilliant network of people who really all pulled together and managed to find this very rare piece of kit that uh, I currently have sat beside me at the moment, which uh, converts, allows me to get the output from a telephone line into my state-of-the-art digital audio <laughs> recording system. I've learned so much about cables and adapters. I, I, I've in, learned in nothing. I can't remember hours. any of it. <laughs> yeah, the, it's, it's interesting also. I mean, my, my, uh, at the moment, my uh, wife is um, busy um, distracting our cat. So uh, the last thing I wanted was for uh, <laughs> the cat to video bomb the call. Uh, I was just uh, keen to avoid that because I didn't want her walking across the keyboard and accidentally coming out of record, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I had a long chat with my dog this morning about keeping quiet and I also just to prevent anyone from coming near the house I've built a sort of fortress with bins and stuck signs all over them you've built, you've built a bin fortress yeah do not approach the house please wow. I did say please in brackets it would have been quite appropriate if there'd been a, a cat David Attenborough zoom bombing <laughs> that's why I don't have cats So Hot Right Now is a podcast created by Lucy Siegel and Tom Mustill. It is produced by Sony Music's Fourth Floor Creative and Picture Zero Productions. Thank you to our awesome and patient producer, Natalie Jameson. Thank you to our guests for giving us their time. And thank you to Chris Ketley for composing this beautiful music. Music.